0: Father, please right now by your Holy Spirit, cause us to hear your word very clearly. I pray that you would bring a great reverence upon us right now so that we would behold the majesty of Christ afresh today and that we would heed this call that you have given to your church at Smyrna to be a faithful witness in an unfaithful world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright. So we are continuing on through the letters to the churches, and we're up to the second church off the ranks here, the church of Smyrna, which is characterized as a very faithful community. And Uh, this is gonna be a great opportunity for us to examine ourselves in light of what is um, upheld as a a faithful church. Now, in the 16th century, uh, over 500 years ago, there was a man named William Tyndale. And William Tyndale, some of you may know, had the choice again and again of living for Christ and his gospel or living for the status quo and staying comfortable. And the fact that we are sitting here today reading our English Bibles is a privilege owed mostly to the work of William Tyndale under the providence of God, of course. Uh, 500 years ago in a world where the Latin Vulgate was generally the only approved Bible translation, Anyone who actually attempted to translate the Bible into English would be put to death. So one day in 1519, just over 500 years ago, a woman and six men were publicly burned at the stake for attempting to teach children the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments in English. And they lost their lives for trying to teach children the Bible in English. Uh, William Tyndale in this culture was a man moved by the Spirit of God to give the Bible to the common people. So he believed that the gospel was meant to be given in plain language to all people rather than simply being kept in a language that typically only the elite of society actually understood. And so Tyndale began working on his English translation of the New Testament and by 1526, He had managed to print thousands of copies of an English New Testament. And not long after this, Tyndale was captured after a few years trying to escape the um, British government. Uh, Tyndale was was captured and imprisoned and he spent two years in a cold and dark prison cell. And his uh, one request has been recorded for us while he was in prison, he said, I beg and entreat your clemency to allow me the use of my Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and Hebrew lexicon, and that I might employ my time with that study. All he wanted to do was to continue his translation work, now looking at the Old Testament and translating that into English, even while he was in prison. And so uh, not long after this, Tyndale was officially declared a heretic and sentenced to death. And this is what he was charged with maintaining that faith alone justifies, maintaining that in order to be saved, one simply needs to believe in the mercy offered in the gospel for the forgiveness of sins, denying the existence of purgatory, and denying that men should pray to Mary or the saints. These are the charges brought against him, charges that we would all hold dear. And if we were holding them dear 500 years ago, we would be put to death for holding those convictions. And so on the 6th of October, 1536, Tyndale was executed by strangling and then burned at the stake publicly. And moments before his death, Tyndale gave these last words. Lord, open the King of England's eyes. That was his prayer moments before his death. And under God's providence, only a few years after this, King Henry VIII authorized the beginning work of an English translation of the Bible. And soon after this, the King James Bible was completed, largely due to the work of Tyndale himself. So his dying prayer was answered. William Tyndale lived for the world where Jesus reigns and he pledged his allegiance to Christ at the cost of his life. And all throughout the letters to the churches that we read in Revelation, Christians in the first century are facing the daily choice of whether to live for Jesus or whether to live for the dominant power of the day. They were faced with the choice to either live for Christ or live for Caesar. And we have the same choice now in a similar way. Do we live for the world where Jesus reigns or do we live for the world where we ourselves reign? So are we going to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus? Or are we going to deny the true cost of discipleship, take up our comfort and follow our own desires? That's a choice we have. So which world are you going to live for? That's a question we should ask today. The Church of Smyrna is just another example of a faithful community choosing to live for the world where Christ reigns in a culture that is mostly opposed to to that world. So Smyrna was a city in Asia minor that became a place of passionate devotion to Rome. Uh, They they were um, extremely zealous for all Roman culture. They were actually the first city in the Roman empire to have a temple built dedicated to a Roman emperor. They had a temple dedicated to Tiberius, who was the Roman emperor when Jesus began his ministry. And as part of the imperial cult of Rome, this idea of Roman worship in the first century, citizens and foreigners all throughout, that society were called to worship the emperor as a god. And the Jews of the time, because they were so prominent through the Roman empire, they had a long history, they were actually able to negotiate a little bit of a deal with the Roman empire. And so instead of offering sacrifices Uh, to the Roman emperor, they negotiated being able to offer sacrifices to their God on behalf of the Roman emperor. And so they were able to continue to practice their religion while staying on the good side of the Roman empire. But the Christians from the early church were not willing in any way to compromise their worship exclusively to Yahweh to the God of heaven and earth and this often came to the cost of their life and so this letter here comes at a time when Christ is calling the church to stay faithful amidst increasing persecution, not only from Rome, but actually from Jews, as we'll see in verse 9. So as we just very briefly work our way through the text here from verse 8, and then we'll unpack it a bit more examining ourselves. In, in verse 8, Jesus introduces himself using the same imagery That we find in the first chapter of Revelation. If you remember, two weeks ago, um, some of you, we went through um, just the symbolic nature and how uh, the descriptions used in the first chapter of Revelation are all used as introductions to each individual church in Revelation 2 and 3. And so we read in Revelation 1, verses 17 to 18, this is where the Apostle John is confronted by the risen and glorified Christ. And he he says, I fell on my face as dead. That's his response to his, uh, well, from the quote-unquote best friend of Jesus. Though so John wrote that about himself. Um, and he, he sees this risen and glorified Christ and he, he falls on his face as though dead. But Jesus gently puts his right hand on his shoulder and he says, fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. And so Jesus gives that same response to John, now introducing himself to the church of Smyrna, comforting them with those words, fear not, I'm the first and the last. Jesus goes on to explain that he knows of their tribulation and their poverty. So Jesus says, though you are afflicted, and impoverished, you are actually rich. You are blessed. The kingdom of God is almost always the opposite of this world. So when we're thinking about what it it means, or what about what a, a faithful church looks like, we should not measure by worldly standards. Kevin DeYoung talks about how a lot of uh, pastors in the modern church talk about the three B's of how to measure your church, budget, building, and bodies. How big is your budget? What kind of building do you have and how many people do you have coming? And that's typically how we measure a, a, a faithful church. You know, how are you growing numerically? And th- that's n- neither good nor, nor bad and often good fruit can be seen in, obviously, people coming to know Christ and and entering into a church community. That's good. It doesn't seem to be the way that Christ actually measures faithfulness. Here, in the church of Smyrna, the church that would actually seem like it's under a curse by the standards of this world, I mean, they're weak, they're afflicted, they're impoverished. Christ is just calling them to just hold on, hold on and be faithful. And, and, He is upholding them and saying, you are blessed. And he is commending them as a faithful community. So the church of Smyrna represents the true marks of success. If we were to use that language, a community who are truly rich in Christ, though they are materially and physically poor. And we read again in verse 9 that they're experiencing slander from the Jews in their area, which simply follows the same pattern that Jesus received in his ministry, uh, encountering slander from the Jewish leaders of his time. So in John 8, you might remember where we're told um, in there that actually the true people of God are not specifically ethnic Jews, though there will of course be ethnic Jews within the true people of God. But it's like Paul says in Romans 2, actually, not all Jews are Jews. This isn't concerning outward appearance, but rather inwardly. He says, those, the true people of God are those who inwardly have been circumcised or changed. The gospel has transformed them. They have believed in the Messiah. And they are now the true people of God. And Jesus says this in John 8, 44. He is confronted by the ethnic Jews, the Jewish leaders of that time who are um, blaspheming him. And Jesus says, you are children of your father, the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Now, Jesus is of course, uh, if we read this post-Holocaust, a lot of people might say that's anti-Semitic. Number one, Jesus was a Jew. And uh, number two, Jesus is not anti-Semitic, he's anti-sin. And so he's anti anyone who is against himself. And so that's why he's saying to the Jews, no, if you were true people of God, you would trust in me. But you're not. You're children of the devil. And you're, you're following his desires. And so this is what Jesus is saying now to the church of Smyrna. He's saying, I know these Jews who are slandering you, they're actually a synagogue of Satan. And in verse 10, he warns them of what they're about to suffer and he calls them to be faithful unto death. And if they do, he will give them the crown of life, which is another way of basically saying you will enter into everlasting life. And these 10 days here that we read about in verse 10, they're a test of their faithfulness. So if you remember the symbolic significance of numbers throughout Revelation and this mention of 10 days here, it draws us back to the book of Daniel. There's actually a lot of links between the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. And in Daniel, you might record how he and his Jewish friends, they were exiled. They were sent away. And Babylon is the big power of the day, which is a lot of similarities between Babylon and Rome. They often cross over as um, emblematic of everything that is against God and his kingdom. And Daniel and his friends are told to eat at the king's table and eat their royal food, which would basically signify they are accepting the Babylonian religion. And so Daniel says, no, 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 no. How about we eat our own food in our own way for 10 days? You can test us, examine ourselves afterwards and see the result. And of course, they then, the Babylonians see, wow, they're much better in appearance. This, this is actually better. And so they are tested and approved as righteous. And here Jesus warns the church of Smyrna that they will have 10 days of testing. 10 is also a number symbolic of completeness, a full period of testing. A period where they will be like Daniel and his friends, tested and tempted to succumb to the pagan religion of Rome tempted to compromise and give in, but like Daniel and his friends, they must resolve not to defile themselves with false religion. And finally, Jesus calls those who have ears to hear that those who conquer, who stay faithful to Christ's name, they will not be hurt by the second death. The second death is the final eternal death that all non-believers will suffer. But those who are faithful to Christ will not be harmed by this. And we know this because, as it says in the opening of Revelation 1, Jesus describes himself as the one who holds the keys to death and Hades. He holds the keys because he himself entered into death. He entered into death and he destroyed it for all who would trust in his name. Jesus effectively broke death. What's the one thing that death was supposed to do? To kill and Jesus broke it because death couldn't hold Jesus. And so Jesus now is saying, be faithful and the second death will not conquer you. Jesus has caused death to no longer have any sting. And so that's why we can trust in this promise to persevere, to to actually conquer Those who conquer the second death will not harm them. And why can we trust in that promise? Because we know Romans 8 that we are now more than conquerors through him who loved us. So this is actually a word of security and and of safety in Christ because he's saying those who conquer the second death will not harm you. And we don't conquer ourselves. We don't muster up courage. We merely cling to the foot of the cross And that's the place where we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Therefore, neither death nor life will separate us from the love of Christ. We are secure. And so this is the situation for the church of Smyrna. Now, if we remember the opening question of which world are we going to live for? We should ask ourselves, how do our lives measure up to the example of faithfulness we see in Smyrna. And uh, I'm going to just finish with four characteristics present in the church of Smyrna that should be present among us as a faithful community. And the first is a prioritization of spiritual riches over material riches. Now we live in a materialistic society and in one sense, materialism is, um, well, material possessions rather, a sort of amoral. They're neither good nor bad. It's really how it grabs our hearts or how we use them. And we, uh, most of the time, remember that the Bible is clear to say the love of money is the root of all evil. But, uh, I would say before we then justify our material wealth by reminding us that the Bible doesn't explicitly say, that money is evil. We should heed the warnings in scripture where we have countless examples of where riches lead a person's heart astray. We probably most prominently think of Solomon and what ended up with him. Jesus is, is very clear to say you cannot serve both God and mammon. And mammon is symbolic of not only money but actually materialism, possessions, that which sort of draws our natural desires. And the church of Smyrna seems to be living consistent, actually, with the Beatitudes we find in Matthew 5, where Jesus says, the poor, they are the ones who are blessed. And this is the opposite of the Laodicean church, which we'll go through as the last church on our rank in Revelation 3, where they have actually, they're like the total opposite. They've acquired material wealth and they say, oh, we've we've acquired wealth, we have no need. And Jesus then says, no, you're You're spiritually naked and destitute. You're not rich at all. You're impoverished. And see, I believe God is very clear to warn us away from materialism because it gives us a false sense of satisfaction. The desire of which can only actually be satisfied by the all satisfying God. That's what materialism does. If we have enough possessions, we dull ourselves. We dull ourselves just enough to fail to realize our desperate need for Christ. And that's why Jesus says, you who are poor, oh, you are blessed. You are actually blessed because your physical poverty is but a sign of your spiritual poverty. And you can now come to find true riches in me. See, remember that all of these letters through Revelation 2 and 3, they're all to do with how the church is witnessing in a pagan culture. It's to do with their public witness. And I believe that a powerful witness that we can have in a materialistic society that we should have as a radical counter community is is actually the rejection of materialism, not for its own sake, but for actually showing that we have a better and lasting possession in Christ and witnessing that to others. Now, I don't think that means that we have to start like having parties where we burn money and we start living in tents and wear the same clothes every day. We don't become more righteous simply because we take a vow of poverty. But I believe the point is to demonstrate a clear priority in areas of our lives and in areas of our community where we prioritize spiritual riches rather than material. And so an application for, for you today, it, it may simply be one thing in your life. One thing that when you think about it, it is a materialistic pleasure that is taking the place of satisfaction in Christ. It's dulling you to your true deep need for Christ and you might rid yourself of that in order to stay on this path of true spiritual riches over materialistic riches. So that's the first characteristic. The second is where we uh, value slander over popularity, popularity rather. So we we, uh, choose slander over popularity. Following Christ necessarily means that you must deny yourself and accept the path of your Savior, who was despised and rejected. So, Jesus says in John 15 to his disciples, if they hate you, well, that's because they hated me first. Of course, the world will hate you because it hates me. And the church of Smyrna was slandered, yet stayed faithful as an unpopular minority. Now, I don't actually believe, um, and I've shared this before um, a few times that in Canberra, I don't actually think that we will face outright hostility all that often. I grew up in Canberra and for 20 years, I couldn't care less whether you were a Christian or not. It was totally irrelevant. I wasn't going to be hostile to you because you're probably more like an annoying cockroach that I don't really care about. And that's really the kind of culture that we're in now, this culture of apathy. But in saying that, there is still a response that people, even in this culture, will have to our public witness, where as a result of us rejecting the dominant ideologies of society and the ways of life which are not consistent with the gospel, and as a result of us actually rejecting that, there will be one of slander, even if it is simply just mockery, just a little bickering. But that actually still comes under a broad definition of persecution that we might find in the Bible. So Jesus actually says in Matthew 5, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. All kinds of evil from the lowest to the most hostile. And Paul is pretty clear when he writes to Timothy saying all those who desire to live a godly life will suffer persecution. It is a certainty. And so a question for us today, if our faith has never actually brought us even the slightest bit of mockery or reviling, or if our faith has never cost us anything, is it genuine faith? That's a serious question to ask. We know there are many who will come to Jesus and say, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? And he says, no, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I don't actually know you. And so a a test for our faith is actually whether it has cost us something or whether we have, in fact, faced this kind of slander. And there is, of course, a difference between people reviling you simply because you're unpleasant to be around so whether you're talking about Jesus or the football people just don't like you and well hey that's probably a hint that you're not actually suffering for Christ you're just suffering because you're annoying to be around but the Christian life will be both one of slander by others and yet I believe praise from some of those very same people and just an example of how this might show um, itself is perhaps in the workplace where you come across um, a work colleague and you've been open about your faith. And so that work colleague says, uh, you know, Tom is such a bigot. Uh, he believes that I'm going to hell because I don't believe in his God. What an idiot. But but he keeps asking about uh, my sister because he heard that she was in hospital and he even offered to make her dinner and bring it to the hospital. And he's actually kind of like a nice guy. I mean, he's an idiot, but he's like, he like wants to help me and serve me. And that's the kind of like paradox that I think we as Christians should have. If we are verbally proclaiming the gospel and then indeed living in light of the gospel, living in light of our self giving God. Where things won't make sense to people, we are unashamed about the gospel for as the power of God to salvation. We are clear on the exclusivity of following Christ but we wanna serve others and we want to love others deeply as a reflection of the love of God in giving himself. And so when it comes to faithfulness to Christ, we always choose slander over popularity, but I believe when it is done in the right way, it will create that sort of paradox in people's minds, which they can't quite grasp. And that is the distinctiveness of the Christian. Thirdly, suffering over safety. So you'll notice in our passage that Christ doesn't actually take them out of the suffering. He knows exactly what is going to happen to them. And he tells them, do not fear what you are about to suffer. You will have tribulation. Now, we follow a suffering servant, right? We should not expect anything different from the way of our savior and so many of his followers like William Tyndale over the course of history who suffered for the sake of the gospel. And this is always a prominent objection to Christianity, right? How could God allow so much suffering? How could God actually allow this much suffering? And that is a fair question. And the reality is we live in a broken world. We live in a broken world. So often suffering actually points to the fact that something is not right and we need a savior. The suffering we witness, as terrible as it is, it points to the fact that we need a savior. The reality is we don't often know exactly why specific suffering occurs, but what we do know for sure is that no suffering is meaningless. We do not live in a meaningless world. And this is one of the most beautiful promises we have if you hold to the sovereignty of God, and this is such an important thing because we will face suffering, terrible things will happen. You remember last week we prayed for a sister, Ali who's facing cancer and she actually died uh, two days ago. So she passed on to be with the Lord and she was only in her late 30s and uh, truly believe that she would be healed, but she believed that she would be healed either in this life or trusting that she will be completely healed in the life to come. But that is a reality, and so people would be asking, why? Why did that happen? And you have to believe in a sovereign God. You have to have a God who at any moment could stop that cancer, who at any moment could stop that hurricane, could stop that murder. You have to have a God who could, otherwise you don't have a God who is in control. Things are chaotic. He's not able to stop it. I don't want that kind of world. But if you trust that he is sovereign over suffering, then you know that these light and momentary afflictions, because in comparison to eternity, that's what they are. They are light and momentary. They are working for us an eternal weight of glory. So all nothing is meaningless. Cancer is not meaningless. Though it seems that way to us, sudden death is not meaningless. Suffering is the chosen path God has ordained for his children to become more and more like Christ, their suffering savior. While on this path to eternal joy and freedom from suffering in his immediate presence because that is our destiny and so we can uh, face suffering on that path because we follow a savior who persevered through suffering to the point of death that is why we fix our eyes on Christ the author and perfecter of our faith we follow him who suffered if you think of him in the garden of Gethsemane with his face in the dirt just pleading if there's any other way. Yet he persevered to the point of death, which is exactly what he is calling the church of Smyrna to and what he's calling us to. And we have hope in that because Jesus did not stay dead. He rose again and now he is the perfect mediator to sustain us through our suffering and to present us before his father as blameless and above reproach. And we know, we know this beautiful truth that there is no suffering that we will go through in this world that God cannot cause to work together for good. Just like he did for Joseph in Genesis, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And just like he did, when the ultimate act of evil in all of history, with the cross of Christ, the only innocent man, to suffer a humiliating and excruciating death, the ultimate act of evil God brought about to bring the ultimate act of redemption, the ultimate way that people would be set free from their sin and dwell with God forever. So that is our hope on this path of suffering. And finally, faithfulness to the name of Jesus. This is really a summary. Faithfulness to the name of Jesus. Uh, I spoke at the beginning of the example of William Tyndale Who uh, was faithful to the name of Jesus and his mission at the cost of his life. And there is another example of faithfulness that we have in history that's actually a lot closer to this example of the church of Smyrna, in fact, someone who was a part of the church of Smyrna. And if you remember last week, we studied the church at Ephesus and I spoke about how actually beyond the first century, we really don't have any record of the church at Ephesus. So it seems unfortunately that Christ came through with his word where he said, if you do not repent, I will remove your lampstand from you. And so we don't have any record of Ephesus. But the church of Smyrna is a totally different story. We actually have much evidence of a thriving community amidst persecution well into the second century. And one of the prominent figures, you may have heard this name before, a man named Polycarp, who was actually the Bishop of Smyrna. And Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John, who wrote this book, who wrote the Gospel of John, the letters of John and the book of Revelation. And so Polycarp, after leading the church of Smyrna for many years, he was arrested by the Roman government and told to deny the name of Jesus and pledge allegiance to Caesar. As we spoke about before, if you were in the Roman Empire, you were to worship the emperor as God. And Polycarp was no different. He was called to deny the name of Jesus, to not call Jesus Lord, but to call Caesar Lord. And Polycarp, when uh, facing his execution, and given one final chance to deny the name of Jesus. He said, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my King and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. This is an 86 year old man saying this as he is about uh, to be, he was actually about to be torn limb from limb by wild beasts. And he said, bring on the beasts. And so they said, right, that's it. You're gonna be burned at the stake publicly. And he says, 86 years I've served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? Polycarp chose to live for the world where Jesus reigns. And you will have that same question faced before you again and again. We obviously choose once and for all to follow Christ, but daily we take up our cross and follow Jesus. And so you will be confronted by that question again and again, which world are you going to live for?